Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. We were made to belong, you and I, and God's plan is that we'd find the deepest sense of genuine, meaningful, joy-filled belonging in church, believe it or not. Discover how you can enjoy and help create a church where everybody feels at home, a place of depth and trust and honesty, of real fellowship and community where people truly experience the love of Jesus, a place where you truly belong. And we have been blessed that Barnabas Piper has written a book to help us explore that potential reality. The book is called Belong, Loving Your Church by Reflecting Christ to One Another. Barnabas Piper is an assistant pastor at Emmanuel Church Nashville. He's the author of numerous books. We've had him on the podcast before. He's written books like Help My Unbelief and Hoping for Happiness. And he's co-host of the Happy Rant podcast. Welcome to the podcast, my brother, Barnabas Piper. How are you, man? Doing real well. Well, thanks for having me back on. Uh, I, it always feels like a sense of validation to be invited back to a podcast. <laughs> That's so, right, doesn't it? <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for validating me. <laughs> I didn't blow it, right. <laughs> well, I mean, you just, you just write a new book, we'll have you back on. That's all you got to do is just crank these things out, man. <laughs> you are the master at cranking them out, <laughs> so you must true. be a repeat visitor on a lot of podcasts. Well, I know. I got to do this podcast every week. That's what's crazy. If I had did a book, uh, if I had less podcasting in my schedule, maybe I could even produce more books, but nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this book, man. I, I, um, I'm going to be honest with you. I was really impressed, and my wife read this before I could get my hands on it, so I got to see all the things that she was impressed by. She's, she's an underliner and a bracketer, so she took her green pen through here and um, lots of juicy quotes and everything. One thing that I noticed right away is this is not a book that, well, let me just say, this is the kind of book that somebody could have just phoned in, right? Like the importance of church. And you could have just gathered up all the, you know, biblical passages about the importance of church and all that sort of deal and and kind of put it all together. And you would have had a nice little book. And it's not a big book in and of itself. It is a short book. It's very readable. But you could have just put together a sort of like, here's why church is important kind of book. But what I noticed is that this, written the way that this is, this isn't just a guy covering a topic. It, it's, it's very evidently, even in, in its not long running time, it's very evidently written by somebody with a particular perspective, from a particular context, with a particular background. So my first question, I suppose, is like, why you? What do you feel like you brought uniquely <laughs> to this book? Because I, I feel like you brought something unique to this subject. Well, yeah. And thank you for the, thank you for the encouraging words. Uh, anytime your wife says something kind about a book, <laughs> I take it very seriously okay. because I know that she is a, she's a careful and avid reader. So yes. that, uh, that means a lot. It means something that you said it, it means a ton that she said it. So pass that along to her <laughs> I will, uh, in case she doesn't listen to this. Yeah. In terms of what I bring uniquely to the book, I think in the way that the Lord has arranged my life, I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid. And so I have been de-invested in the church and deeply invested in by the church from birth for better and worse, sort of a, a complicated relationship for a long time where there's, it's a thing that I, I love the church. I have always loved the church. And at times I kind of love it. Like you might love a sibling where you're like, I love you, but if you get any closer, I'm going to fight you. <laughs> right. um, and then in, in the last, I'd say seven, seven ish years, 
that has that has shifted to a more full realization of what God intends a person to find in the church, which which is, I mean, in the unity of the body of Christ. For me, that has been at Emmanuel where I now serve. But I I always want to be careful not to be like, Emmanuel has cornered the market on this. We, God is doing some great things at our church and he has for a long time. But there are a lot of wonderful churches where this kind of thing is, is happening. So moving from from cynical and complicated to I'd say I'd say passionate and committed and and fully invested, but without blinders. I'm well aware of how lousy the church can be because the other piece that that the Lord in his providence gave me was a chance to work in Christian publishing for almost a decade and a half, which means I got to see into from the outside dozens and dozens of ministries for better and worse. And so to see where things go off the rails, to see what is healthy and what's not. And so there's there's sort of a, a third party perspective that I get to, and I still have that, you know, I still have those those awarenesses, even as I absolutely love the church and I'm invested in it now. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things like my wife and I sometimes joke that church people are the worst in the world <laughs> and church people <laughs> are, are the best people in the world. And I think that reality comes only from having been grown up in church and you know, when you're in close yeah. proximity to people, even people that you love, you're going to you're going to suffer some hurts and you're going to experience some loves. And so we have kind of this uh, one thing I've been reflecting on recently is how two people in the same in the exact same church experiencing the same church can have two different almost parallel experiences where someone can say, yeah. I'm really frustrated with my church experience here. And another one can say, this has been the, you know, the most healing church experience I've, I've, I've ever had. And I think that's just because it's like a family, which is kind of what I want to ask you next, because your description of the church's family, again, anyone just sort of covering this topic, like anyone who just wanted to phone this in could have, you know, looked at all the passages that, that speak about the brethren and about you know, God, our father and, and, and Christ, you know, not being ashamed of his brothers and those sorts of things. And just, yeah, the church is a family. And I think all of us sort of, we have this idea that, yeah, the church is supposed to be a family. But the way that you describe it and even just sort of the you know, illustrative language that you use, it made it really vivid to me. So I was trying to find it again as I was flipping through here. But there's a part, I couldn't find it. There's a part where you talk about going to church and it's like a, a reunion where you you're, all your cousins are there. And, and so it, it may not be people that necessarily that you're super close with, but you're related to them. You just made it vivid in a sense. I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk to us about mm -hmm. how do you make that shift? And maybe some of it's not even in your own control, but what helps us make the shift to see yeah. the church like family? Yeah, it's. I think you're right when you say some of it's not in our control because there is an element of kind of a Holy Spirit enlivening there where, mm -hmm. where you, you kind of have to have some some scales lifted off your eyes, if you will, to, to see it that way. But one of the things for me that was a shift, and again, some credit to the Holy Spirit, some credit to, <laughs> to uh, good teachers, et cetera, was the realization that you choose how you view the church. There, there's, a, there's a recognition of, so let me, let me back up. We were supposed to do this podcast a week or so ago. I was in Georgia with family for my grandmother's funeral. She was 101. She loved Jesus. It was much more of sort of a laying to rest and celebration of life. I have a huge family on that side. You know, I'm introducing myself 
myself to people who I'm related to and we haven't seen each other in 20 years and I don't remember who they are. <laughs> but when I walk into that, that funeral home or then the, my, the, my grandmother's house afterwards and there's 50 or 150 people there, there's just a recognition that th- this is family. Everybody here is family and that puts boundaries on the conversations. It shapes the conversations. It opens up doors for certain kinds of things. You are two degrees of separation from anybody because, you know, they're married to somebody who is your aunt or whatever it is. And so you get to walk into church and have that realization, except you kind of have to conscientiously put it on that in Christ every year is family. Even if I don't know them and I have to introduce myself, there's just... That, that reality exists. God says it exists. He doesn't say, he doesn't even say you're like family. He says you are family. He calls, you know, talks about the household of God. And so that principle has become a guiding thing for me. And again, like every Sunday I have to do this, you know, I talk to people and I have to remind myself, this person is not an interruption. This person is not a nuisance. This person is not just, they're not a weirdo. Maybe they are a weirdo, but like <laughs> they're my weirdo cousin. So I'm going to love them. And so there's, it has, has to do with that, where there's a, just a recognition and a conscientious decision to go, oh, I'm going to view the church the way God says it is, not, not aspirationally, but actually. Mm. You talk about the biblical command, essentially, to bear with one another in love. W- one of the turning points, I think, for me, and it's a continual thing. It's not like it just, you know, had this milestone, you know, moment or epiphany. But I just have to constantly think, they're bearing with me. <laughs> you know, I mm-hmm. mean, why would I begrudge having to bear with someone when I realize, like, I'm not, like, the easiest guy to get to know. I've got a terrible resting face. I always look just, I look like I'm unhappy, even if I'm not, you know. <laughs> so people are, they're in some ways having to summon up courage even to come talk to me. So I, I can bear with one another because, you know, with others because they have to bear with me. Talk to us a little bit about how you you know, make that shift also to see the church as, gosh, not just a a thing, well, not at all a thing to go and and consume out of or, you know, leech spiritual resources out of that sort of thing. But like, gosh, I'm going to contribute. I'm actually going to help people bear their burdens. How do you, you know, how does a person make the shift from religious consumer to contributor and supporter and bearer? Yeah, it's, Boy, that's a that I think that's one that's that's especially tough because our we we constantly gravitate back towards consumer. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm one of the pastors at our church. I work for this church. I give I give the best part of my energies to this church, and I still periodically catch myself kind of grumpily thinking, "Well, this this isn't the way I like it." You know, there's <laughs> right. sort of that that consumeristic like I would order something different off the menu if if it was up to me. That's a the selfishness is just a default that we have to constantly work our way out of and trust the Lord to grow us out of. I think what you just said is has been a significant thing for me is just taking a step back and and doing honest self-examination. I just preached from Ephesians 3 last Sunday, and Paul calls himself, you know, the least of all the saints in that. Mm-hmm. And you look at that and you're like, that's insane. You're the <laughs> apostle Paul. Except he genuinely thought that about himself. He was well aware of the the miracle that it was that he had gone from avidly persecuting the church, kind of rapidly persecuting the church, to being an apostle on behalf of the church. There's, you know, talk about it. Talk about a redemptive arc. And if I look at my own self, it's not a different redemptive arc in terms of uh, it's you know it's different details of the story, but in terms of the miracle of what the Lord has done, and also the ongoing need for grace. 
in that passage, in the first part of Ephesians 3, four times Paul talks about the grace of God given to him. Hmm. Well, that's not so different than what I need every day, not only from God, but from God's people. Bearing with somebody, my default is to recognize all the ways I have been good to others and to fail to recognize all the ways I have needed them to be good to me. Hmm. And so that that Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, kind of letting scripture cast a light on your soul, self-examination, and just going, man, I— I need these people. I need these people. And then, and even the ones who frustrate me, you know, there's, there's a iron sharpening iron is not, is not a, is not a soft and pleasant process. Hmm. There, there's friction there. There's, there's kind of, there's noise, there's heat. There's, there's a fair amount of potential conflict that comes out of that so that we become honed. And so that has been a big piece of it. Then, then the realization that if, if I need all of these people, then they also need me and not in an egotistical way, but in a, a God intends me to be part of this, which means he has something for me to offer. I think one of the, the nagging questions, Ray, Ray Ortland said this one time, and at the time I didn't really understand it. I think I do more and more now. He said, one of the nagging questions that almost everybody has when they're in church is, do I belong here? And he said, everybody, not just like new people, but like lifetime members at a church, do I belong here? And part of the realization there is that when the Bible describes us, you know, talks about being a Christian and being part of the body, it just says, yeah, this is, this is it. This is the place for you is part of the body of Christ. And if that's the case, then all of those other things it says about, you know, one body with many members and no member is, is, is to be dishonored or said, you don't belong here. That, that means I not only belong, I have something to offer. I play a role here. No member of a church is the appendix. There isn't, there isn't just a removable, useless member of a church. There is a, everybody plays a part. So when you come to church, you're thinking, man, I can't survive without these people. And also I contribute to their survival in my little way. And you recognize that it's little, you know, you're not, you're not that special. I'm not that special. The church will go on without me or you or anybody else, but also God, God intended for me to bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, and be part of this whole thing, be part of the, the, the body ecosystem. Yeah, you know, if church is in a way designed to kind of work against my self-centrality, if it's, kind of, if it's designed to stifle my self-interest or, I don't know, I guess just work against my own sort of need to be the center of everything and what have you, and whenever I feel frustrated then that it doesn't meet all my preferences or it's not exactly how I would design it to be or whatever, you know, just to think like how sanctifying it must be to go to church then, <laughs> like how, how the Lord that, you know, the iron mm-hmm. sharpening iron analogy that you just, you know, brought to mind, that's not a soft and, and, and pleasant thing. It's, if it is in a sense a hardship, the normal kind of hardship of just having to decenter myself, then it must be making me more like Jesus, I guess, in, in some way. In your chapter on unity, I really resonated with, you have a little section called the faux unity of againstness, which, gosh, in the early days of kind of the gospel-centered thing, young, restless, reformed, whatever you want to call it, I was one of those guys who planted a church. In fact, I planted around the same time that Ray planted Emmanuel Church. I realized in kind of those early days that what I was doing in large respects, was driven by, I'm not the seeker-sensitive guy anymore. And it was kind of a hollow, that was a magnet for, you know, for some folks. But I realized that I was really kind of building what you describe here, which is our cause is that we're against, or we're not what we used to be. 
I wouldn't say necessarily right. that we were against other people. But it was just more like we were a reaction against what we didn't want to be anymore, which is a similar thing. Talk to us about the faux unity of againstness, because I think it plays out in different ways today. What's the problem yeah. with that? Yeah, and that sort of thing. Yeah, the, I mean, the, there's a lot of problems with it. Uh, <laughs> right. I feel a little bit. I feel a little bit like uh, like a Seinfeld character. I got a lot of problems with you people. <laughs> There's a lot of problems with it. The most pressing of which is how appealing it is. Mm. The easiest way in this day and age to gather a coalition of people and seemingly be unified is to find one thing you all similarly hate or are annoyed by or are threatened by. You see it in politics. You know, all of the rhetoric of politics is, is againstness. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much defined by what we stand for. It's defined by who is the threat to us. You see it in certain kinds of churches where this is the case. We're going to start a church like you, like you described to not be like this and that, whether that's theological or methodological or whatever it is. And, and the thing about that is like, so it's super appealing because there's a lot of energy in it. We all agree on this one thing. It, and you start to run into problems like, well, where are we going? What, you know, the, the church is designed to, to do things and to go somewhere. That means you don't actually have unity in what you're about. What is the defining message, the defining identity, the defining purpose, which ought to be, you know, the glory and gospel of Jesus Christ. And it also, it means that you don't have a true heading. You just have something you're trying to avoid. It's like playing a dodgeball. You know, you're not going anywhere. You're just constantly getting out of the way of stuff. <laughs> and so if, you know, if you tracked the route on somebody playing dodgeball, it would just look like a crazy zigzag. Well, that's kind of a, a church or a political party or any other group that is just against over time, you look at it and you're like, you have, you have not stood for anything. You've just moved from, you just zigzagged all over the place. Instead of having a true North heading of come what may, we will glorify Jesus Christ. These are our doctrinal distinctives and we're not going to move off of these. And we're just going to continue to, to love one another and to preach the gospel and to repent and confess sin. And you know, whatever these distinctives of a church are, and so you, you basically have no identity if you are defined by what you are against. You have energy that will burn itself out. Because the other thing is it becomes a snake eating its tail after a while. Mm. Because if you're defined by what you're against, that's where the energy is. You just become kind of angry and insular and you turn on one another. When you come to that point of disagreement, which you're going to because you don't actually have anything that you're built on, you're just going to devour one another instead of saying we do have commonalities on these essential things. That's a secondary issue. Let's work through that with, with rigor, but with grace and, uh, and keep the main thing, the main thing. And so there's a, there's a lack of direction. There's a lack of long-term unity. It will burn out. It's like a sparkler, you know, it, it, you light it, it goes really hot. It's really bright. And then it just kind of fizzles out because th there is nothing to sustain it over time. As cultural issues change, the relevance of that church changes. Yep. I was at a church in college that had been founded in the earlier mid eighties, I think. So at that point it was 20, 25 years old, something like that. It's doctrinal statement was defined by things that were pressing theological issues in, in the early and mid eighties. It had to do with the roles of men and women. It had to do with young earth creation. It had to do with the inerrancy of scripture, all of which are things that are worthy of, of, of discussion. And with the exception of inerrancy of scripture, None of those are things on which you should build a church. 
and so it was a church that that was off kilter by that time because the gospel was not the the first and foremost thing because they defined themselves by what they were against. The cultural issues had changed and they they kind of stopped being able to speak to the realities of the day, whereas the gospel never loses relevance. And the reality of Christ is is eternal and cross-cultural. So you, you don't you don't ever lose efficacy or relevance. So I, I could probably go on, but in a nutshell, those are kind of the issues with building a church and even finding a sense of belonging by boy, we all hate the same things. We're all against this. Like It is an itch that is really enjoyable to scratch as an individual. So <laughs> if you, listener, really, if you find that and you're like, man, this feels great, you should second guess yourself immediately and, and think about what, where are we going? What are we about? What are we for? Not just who do we avoid? What do we dislike? What are we against? I think of this every time I see somebody, I mean, it's on Twitter, invariably it's on Twitter, say something like, if your pastor is not speaking to X, Y, or Z this Sunday, you find a new church. And it's, you know, typically some political cultural issue, which, you know, yeah. as you mentioned, isn't necessarily an insignificant issue or even something that, that Christians should have a perspective on. But just the idea that, you know, that is what is the pinnacle or the foundational experience of church. You, you list four significant problems with this mindset. And, you know, you touched on a few of them just there. But the one that really stands out for me is how it's constantly changing. You're having to shift, like you just mentioned. Mm. You have to find new enemies. You have to find new causes. And then what happens, <laughs> you mentioned, so you say this perceived unity is shallow and short-lived. I think it does great. The sparkler analogy is good. It, 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 it does great at sort of attracting people at first and kind of generating passions and, and energy. But you say, what happens if I change my mind or soften my views? <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm on the outside, right? They're always looking. I think that's the difference between just sort of a fundamentalist theology, which in the beginning was a good mm-hmm. thing, a response to modernism and so forth. But then the fundamentalist culture, what that became, which is just constantly us against them. And then, you know, you draw the circle smaller and smaller until, actually, I'm not sure about you anymore. <laughs> I'm the only one inside the circle now because I'm the only one I can be sure of. But this is not what you build a unity on, which is the fourth problem mm-hmm. that you say. This is not at all the picture of Christian unity in the church that the Bible invites us into. True Christian unity is about the whole person and the whole body of believers, not about an issue or a group of people. I just think that's really important, really in- insightful. One thought on that, uh, the, the, the whole againstness thing. I say this today because you brought up the social media example. If, if your church hasn't addressed X, then find a new church. There's like two words that you can put in for X that remain that are true. Everything else, <laughs> yeah. you can you can completely dismiss that statement. I mean, if your church has not addressed Jesus this Sunday, find a new church. Accurate. You know, <laughs> if your church has not prayed this Sunday, find a new church. Accurate. You know, if your church hasn't opened the Bible this Sunday, accurate. Beyond that, it's uh, no, <laughs> that's not the definition of church. Now, I will say this. I am not against, I mean, churches must address issues of culture because, because the Bible is the defining reality of truth. And so it, it will shine a light into those issues, but how and when is a matter of discernment, not social media. Like it, what the church addresses is not, is not a democratic vote by social media activists. You know, they don't get to just be like, we've all agreed churches must address X. Nope, that, that's not how that goes. Jesus said, <laughs> Jesus said, he said, uh, everybody else can take a back seat. So 
hopefully that takes some pressure off of the pastors who got up, faithfully preached Jesus, maybe prayed about a social issue, a, po- a political issue, but didn't speak to it. And then they get on Twitter at, at two o'clock on Sunday afternoon, which is a terrible idea, by the way. And, uh, <laughs> and they feel like they failed as a pastor, but you didn't because you unified a congregation around Christ, which is the point. Hmm. Your chapter five, you, you go through a list of like, well, what do I do if I feel X, Y, and Z? In some ways, I feel like it's the most important chapter of the book because as I was reading, I just was thinking, you know, those who were reading this sort of with the mindset of, okay, yeah, this sounds good, or yeah, I would love to belong, but to go back to the, you know, the early church planting days. Well, years later, I was at Emmanuel Church on a Sunday, which happened to be an anniversary Sunday. I don't remember if it was like the seventh anniversary year. And in the beginning, I remember, um, so my church met in Emmanuel Church's original building on Sunday evenings. And so on some Sunday mornings, we would go and worship um, with our brothers and sisters there. And I just remember thinking like, well, first of all, because I loved Ray, I just remember thinking like, Ray deserves better. <laughs> there, should, there should be way more people here and all that sort of thing. And I also remember because I'm, because I'm an idiot thinking like, how is this even going to work, right? It's, it's, it's Ray and like a handful of old people. And um, it's like, this is not what you, this is not what it takes to, to plant a church, man. As if, you know, I knew what I was doing. My church plant no longer exists <laughs> and, and closed its doors the day I left town. On that anniversary, I just remember, you know, first of all, how full the place was. The diversity of people that were there was very noticeable, both ethnic, um, ethnically and generationally. And Ray got up and basically, I'm paraphrasing here, he said something like, when we started this church, we started basically with brokenness. And we just said, Lord, mm-hmm. do with us what you want. And I was just so impressed by that. And not that the Lord is ever impressed by us, but I think in the right sense, the Lord is impressed by that. What has been built at the church where you, where you are a pastor now, I think is really special. When you get to this chapter five, you're really, I think, taking in, taking into your heart as you write the hearts of people who, as they're reading through chapters one through four are going, yeah, this sounds like a good idea, but what do I do when I don't feel like I belong? What do I do when I'm disappointed? What do I do when I'm, you even have, I think you have the phrase, I'm too high maintenance. What do I do when I'm too high maintenance? How about a word, <laughs> just sort of a gracious word for those folks? My, my first thing I would say is, yeah, I get it. Me too. Um, <laughs> and for all the reasons that I said earlier, except there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot more to that story. I, in the preface, I wrote briefly just about kind of my experience of, of arriving at Emmanuel and having come out of a place of really jaded cynicism with a distinct awareness that, yes, the Lord wants me to be part of a church. Also, I kind of hate that idea. <laughs> and I, the, the reality of churches was not nearly as great as the reality of what God intended. And so I just felt the disparity. And so even when I heard that the warm welcome and all this stuff, my immediate response was like, yeah, let's find out if they actually mean this stuff. I've heard a lot of churches say a lot of nice things and not live up to it. That's still my instinct, which I hope helps me as a pastor because it means that I'm thinking about the person who doesn't want to be there, doesn't is not inclined to trust us, whatever that case is. One of the things that has been so meaningful as a pastor at Emmanuel is the chance to care for folks who are coming out of some sort of church weariness, hurt, burnout, 
out people who have been in ministry who are like, I just need to, I need a landing place. People who have been at church splits, people where that, you know, whatever the situation was, there's, you know, there's a dozens and dozens. And to provide a place where they can hopefully regain trust in what God can do in a local body because of what you quoted from Ray. We started in brokenness. We're not really that far from it now. You know, we're just, <laughs> we just want to put one foot in front of the other with the next faithful step for the Lord, which I think is kind of how the early church worked. What's the next right thing to do to follow the Lord? And, uh, and it worked. And so, so to the people who are weary, jaded, burnt out, hurt, disappointed. And I draw a distinction between hurt and disappointed. Uh, disappointed means your expectations weren't met and maybe they were wrong expectations. Maybe they were right. Hurt means somebody in the church or the church itself sinned against you. Yeah, Those are really different things. One of which is actually way more damaging than the other, but both can lead to cynicism. And it's simply that, again, back up to what did Christ say about you? What did Christ say about you? He, he, says, he says, as a believer, you are part of my family, my body. I'm building you into a dwelling place for God. And that's not an individual thing. That's a, that's a collective thing. That's all of us. So that is who you are. So just because you have experienced burnout and hurt at one church doesn't mean that Christ has failed. Uh, it's, it's not indicative of Christ's desire that churches hurt people. In fact, it's the opposite. And, and maybe it's the worst sort of opposite because it's, it's the place where there's supposed to be utmost representation of Jesus and it's utmost representation of something else. So don't give up on the body of Christ because certain expressions of it have, have failed badly. And then in that chapter, I also, I ask people to push themselves in honest, humble self-evaluation about your own expectations, your own humility, your own willingness to take a risk. Will you take the step into fellowship? There's a lot of people who wait on the fringes for the church to draw them in, when in reality, the doors of the church are wide open and you just need to walk in. And so it's kind of a twofold thing. One is don't give up on Christ because the church has failed, because churches have failed, I should say, not the church. And also, in light of who you are in Christ, look at yourself honestly and say, what, what is the step that I need to take in obedience, in faith, to engage the fellowship of believers at a local church? Yeah, you've got an important section in that chapter about self-evaluation and self-audit, which I think is, is always good and always wise. You end the book, I think, very importantly, with a whole chapter on Christ as the friend of sinners and what the experience, uh, how the experience of church is for many people, their experience of Christ. I thought that was really, well, not just a fitting end, but a great sort of reorientation or, or just sort of a recalibration for us as we reach the end of the book. Before we wrap up here, tell me about the series, right? Because this is a part of the Good Book Company's mm -hmm. series, Love Your Church. What's, what's that all about? Yeah, so in, uh, I want to say it was in 2020, Tony Morita, who's, uh, who's a pastor, Pastor in North Carolina, I'm sure you know Tony. Yeah. Uh, came out with a book called "Love Your Church" from the Good Book Company, and it was the timing of it. I don't think they intended this. This was just one of those providential things. Was sort of as churches were figuring out how to regather post all the COVID distance and shutdown and, and just all that mess. We're coming out of that, I should say. So maybe it was 2021 the book came out, and it really resonated with people and with churches because during that time there was so much loose of bonds where people who had habitually gone to church just sort of disappeared. And, and then there was those who were like, oh, this is, I need to figure out how to make this a priority in my life because it, it was no longer easy. Well, out of that, between Acts 29 
and the Good Book Company, an idea was formed of what if we take Tony's book and take each chapter and turn it into a short book that they can then especially be used by churches to encourage members for studies, for new member classes, whatever the case may be, to look at all these different facets of loving your church. So the first three books that came out in that series, one was Belong, that's mine, Gather by Tony Marita, and then Welcome by Jen Oshman all came out at the same time. And so there will be at least five more books. They may expand it. All of them are short books, 100, 115 pages or so, designed for churchgoers to figure out what does it look like to love my church by engaging it in this way, viewing Christ in this way, et cetera. So that's the series. It's I think it'll, over the next couple of years, it'll all release. There are three volumes out right now, Belong, Gather, and Welcome. The Good Book Company has has some discounts in place for, for churches that want to buy in bulk to give them away or use them in, in classes or whatever the case may be as well. I actually was going to mention, I think it is a good book for that end, not just because it's short and readable, but it's got discussion questions for small groups. So I could really envision churches using this in either their membership classes or just as a small group study for a semester or for a season to go through together. I, I hesitate to compare it to, to Bonhoeffer's Life Together, man, because that's such a <laughs> it's such a dime in that book. <laughs> Thank you. But please, it, it please is don't. A, yeah, yeah. No, no. But I mean, it's a uh, it's 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 along those lines. It's a book like that. But I think it takes maybe five steps back and and it has a different starting point than Bonhoeffer's book. It's a spiritual cousin, I guess, so to speak. To yeah. This book. So yeah, I, I feel like you know I I just recently read Life Together by Bonhoeffer, and it's intense. You know, yeah, it is yeah. it is a. Like it, it asks a lot, which is fair in the sense of if we are this in, in light of who Christ has made us, asking a lot is reasonable. I did start way back from that because there's just simply a lot of people who are viewing the church with skepticism, who don't see the vision of what God intended, for whom the church feels very optional for some yeah. um, or or just kind of like where I was at, I know this is a good thing. I don't know how to get in on the good of it. And so my hope was to kind of open that door and say, well, this is this is what it looks like for a church where where you can belong and for you to take those steps and then for the church to to create that context as well. That's great. The book's called Belong, Loving Your Church by Reflecting Christ to One Another. Numerous good endorsements here, but this is what Paul Tripp says. In a way I have never read about before, Barnabas Piper defines gospel belonging and then shows how to live it. Belong from the Good Book Company. It's available wherever good books are sold. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the program. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoy the podcast, dear listener, give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.